What's going on, family? This is your boy, DJ Preach, the founder of The Life Show Radio. And I see that you're doing great things right now by keeping it locked here on the MTMV Sports Podcast. Yeah, I better be talking about the Carolina Panthers. Let's go. Gun owners across the country have become targets of frivolous lawsuits. At X-Insurance, we provide custom firearm liability insurance to eliminate your exposure and to protect you from unscrupulous lawyers. And if lawsuits arise, we aggressively fight them. We're the best at what we do, and we've been doing it for more than 40 years. We offer same-day quotes and solutions. So call us today or have your agent call us, and let's get that target off your back. For more information, visit xinsurance.com. We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at HomeAdvisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the HomeAdvisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your everything. Download the Home Advisor app today to get started. Hello, everybody. I'm Ed Robinson, and welcome to another exciting edition of The Robinson Show. On the program, I have Nyjah Rollins. She is a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion. She's going to talk about her upbringing and also the world of martial arts and so much more. She's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Robinson Show. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room, you don't go to a clinic, you get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're gonna do, but the first reflex should not be, I feel sick, I'm gonna go to an emergency room, I feel sick, I'm gonna just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, you may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. Wash your hands with soap and water before you eat, after using the toilet, after touching anything many other people touch, like a seat on a public bus. Scrub thoroughly for 20 seconds. If you cannot wash your hands, use a hand sanitizer. Taking these steps can prevent not only coronavirus, but also colds and flu and other viruses. For more information, visit the World Health Organization's website, www.who.int, or the Centers for Disease Control's website, www.cdc.gov. All right, everybody, welcome back to the program. So now let's introduce our guest. She is a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion, and she's won numerous titles, not just in the United States, but all around the world. We're going to talk to her about her uh, background in martial arts and amongst other things. Let's welcome to the program, Nyjah Rollins. Hello, Nyjah. How's everything? I'm great. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. And um, let's, uh, again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. So uh, let's get right to it. Uh, you're born and raised in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. So uh, uh, describe your upbringing in the nation's capital. Oh, awesome. Well, um, yes, I'm a D.C. native. Um, I actually grew up um, in near Anacostia Park, so maybe about 10 minutes from the capital. Um, I had a, a, an awesome upbringing. I'm in a city. One of the things I love about, of course, Washington, D.C. is um, I just love how um, community-oriented it is. Um, there was always lots of activities for us to do. Um, you know, we were city kids, so, of course, you know, outside riding our bikes until uh, the streetlights came on and we had to get, you know, home. Um, my parents worked extremely hard. I was born um, in Benham Park Apartments. And my parents worked extremely hard with a single-family home right in the Anacostia area um, that they still own. And um, we were, you know, a very community-oriented family. Uh, we did a lot of things within our community as far as engagement, uh, cleaning up, you know, even going out and doing things like feeding homeless throughout the city. So, you know, I am – I've traveled all over the world, but I, I love, you know, Washington, D.C. in particular because of – um, you know, the people who are here, um, you know, we were always rooted over my parents, you know, enrolled us in martial arts in Washington, D.C. at a local recreational center. And we were like the community pride. So whenever we would go to tournaments and different things like that, you know, we had community members, you know, clapping when we got back, stopping by just to really say how proud of us that they were. So, um, you know, I've had an awesome upbringing. I went to D.C. public schools, um, or elementary, which has now been named as Lawrence E. Boone Elementary, was actually my uncle. Um, and I went there all the way up until the fifth grade. Um, so I've always gone to school in Washington, D.C. I even graduated from Trinity University, which is also in the city. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely love where I'm from. Awesome to hear. You know, D.C. is one of my favorite cities to travel to, so it's definitely a lot of culture in D.C. Let's stay with the with the district for a moment. Were you influenced by – we know D.C. is a city that it's about uh, politics and um, just the, the day-to-day of uh, making decisions. Were you influenced by the uh, the politics in the nation's capital? Um, to be honest, not really. My, my, my parents – I have a completely different beat. I, I have, uh, I would consider pretty militant parents. And even though been around the politics, I was very aware, you know, what was going on. I was, you know, even as a young person, knowing the importance of voting, going out to have your voice heard, being involved uh, for whoever the leaders are in your, your community. I knew what it looked like to have a community leader um, who was actually advocating for you. So, um, you know, with, with all of that, I think, you know, since a young kid, I was very aware of what was happening within the district. You know, my, my, my parents are always those who say, you know, you have your politicians, but you also have, you know, your personal power, what you can do within your community. And that was kind of, you know, the way that we were raised. All right, solid. It's good that you had a, a great upbringing, and your parents allowed you to, uh, you know, always give you like uh, var- uh, differences of opinion. And you mentioned about your parents getting you involved in uh, martial arts at a very early age. So, what was your? Um, can you go into uh, let the listeners know in detail what your introduction was like into um, not just sports but just uh, martial arts in particular? Well, it's it's really funny. I always laugh because I, you know, as a martial arts instructor, I always have 
you know, the student who comes in who is just like me. Like, I don't want to take martial arts. I'm only here, you know, because my parents are forcing me to take martial arts. And that was kind of my story. Uh, I started martial arts uh, with my older brother, um, Mike Easton, who's um, a retired UFC fighter. And we um, were part of a program called I Have a Dream Foundation, awesome foundation sponsored um, a little over 30 kids, basically two and through college. So by being a part of that program, introduced us to a lot of different um, sports and, you know, from martial arts to lacrosse, a lot of different things. But martial arts is kind of what uh, really stood out. Um, my brother had a severe learning disability and was kind of having some issues in school, so the program recommended martial arts for him. And um, we both went to the same school at that time, and I was kind of getting picked on in school. Um, I was a very non – I'm still a very non-confrontational person. And, you know, my dad was like, she, you know, really needs to have some confidence, you know, as our kids um, in the time that we grew up in D.C. Um, in the 80s. Um, early 90s, there was a lot of things that are also happening as our communities were also going through a major change. And, you know, my dad was like, I want to feel confident as a young lady as you walk to and from school that you're able to effectively protect yourself. So with that being said, my parents enrolled me in martial arts when I was about seven years old. Um, I literally faked a stomach ache every day that I had martial arts. I would start like the night before, like my stomach's hurting. I knew martial arts was coming the next day. And, you know, my parents have a, are very specific when it comes to, like, when we start things, we finish them. Um, I started at Simba Doe Jane um, at a local recreational center that was at the school that we went to. And I remember, like, back then it was only, like, $10 a month per family. So it was, like, something that was super affordable for my parents. And um, over time, I would say maybe after about two years when I realized, like, my parents are not going to let me quit martial arts. I have to keep taking this. You know, my dad said you can either enjoy what you're doing right now and really kind of go all in, you know, or you can just complain, but you're, you're going to continue to take the martial arts. And I think once, you know, I realized that, I said, okay, let me, you know, really try to enjoy it. And um, I just had a knack for martial arts super flexible, um, very athletic. I was ex extremely fast, and I caught on to the techniques, you know, really well. So really within, like, my um, – I would say, like, moving into my third year of martial arts, I started to show um, some skill and advancement. And, you know, once I built that confidence, it's really been, you know, all from there. We're going to get more into martial arts in just a moment, but before your parents got you – involved in martial arts as well as your brother did you participate in, in any sports growing up or was it just or was it just uh, martial arts from the jump well we've always kind of had like a martial arts we've always been around martial arts my dad is an avid bruce lee fan like saturdays were reserved for like bruce lee from cereal all the way until dinner time and so we were always kind of surrounded by martial arts but i i did track in school um you know kickball, anything that were offered after school before martial arts, I was definitely a very active kid. Um, you know, my parents always said, like, we had to be a part of some type of activity. Um, of course, with a lot of, like I said, a lot of the changes that were going in D.C., they're like, if you have unoccupied time, kids will find something else to do. So we were always a part of um, some type of sport. Um, I took really, you know, really good to track for track. Um, I ran about three years track. And, um, you know, dabbled and tried, tried some other sports, including softball, um, you know, kickball. Uh, but martial arts is really where it landed home for us because it was one activity that all of us could do versus, you know, me going to track. My brother was playing football. My parents, you know, really made that like our family activity. 
So martial arts is really where we settled. But I've, I've done a lot of different things. I even played softball in college. Um, but martial arts has really been my specific niche. Okay, let's let's get now specifically into martial arts. When you first started, were you involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or did you study other forms of martial arts? No, I studied Taekwondo um, for eight years before transitioning to jiu-jitsu. Um, and that was it. I went from um, Taekwondo. Um, I went all the way up to Black Belt Candidate. I started with Simba Dojang, and then I transitioned over to um, Master Wyatt, uh, which is Washington Taekwondo Club. Um, and then we moved from out of the D.C. area to Maryland, but right outside of the city. And um, I started with, like, a summer job at um, a local Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy who did mixed martial arts. And because I had such an extensive background in striking, um, they brought me on as, like, a kid's summer camp instructor, um, specifically teaching Taekwondo techniques to add to their mixed martial arts experience. Um, and it wasn't until there was a kid there. He was, like, 11 years old. And I used to see the kids kind of do jiu-jitsu, but I, I wasn't, I hadn't made that step into jiu-jitsu. And, like, this 10-year-old kid held me down on the ground, and I could not get up. And, you know, it was a really big wake-up call for me to say, like, man, I don't have all this striking, but, like, you know, studies show us that over 80% of altercations end up on the ground anyway. And I'm like, man, if I were ever to get, you know, knocked to the ground, what would I do? And that was really the introduction for um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai for me um, after that experience. Wow, that's, you brought up some uh, very interesting forms of martial arts that you've studied. That's uh, Taekwondo, Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and also Muay Thai. And, and we know, I've known from uh, being a fan of it during the years and also knowing people that have practiced it, that have practiced it, and it's all um, different origins and different fighting styles. Can you explain to the audience out there the differences between Taekwondo, Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, Muay Thai? Of course. So um, Taekwondo is a striking art. Taekwondo actually means um, hand and foot art um, with the heavy, um, heavy on like kicks. So Taekwondo, and if you've ever seen like the competitive sport, um, it's point sparring. So, you know, you get a certain amount of points if you target the head, but it's not specifically face. It's like the top of the head or the side of the head, um, the chest, the stomach. So, um, it's a, a very traditional style of martial arts, and um, that is where I started. So it's only striking in Taekwondo. They have a lot of katas, also known as forms. So, you know, if you've seen people, it looks like they're going through and fighting these imaginary opponents, um, and it looks like it's very specific strategic moves, um, that's Taekwondo. Um, I took Muay Thai, um, which is punches, kicks, knees, and elbows. Um, and I studied Muay Thai for about five years um, in addition to doing the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well. And Muay Thai has a lot of similarities to Taekwondo, um, except I think that it's a, um, a little more um, as far as, like, street self-defense. Um, it's, it's a little bit more effective because you can use more points of the body. Um, elbows and knees are, are some of the most vicious strikes that you can do. Um, so Muay Thai, which is originally from Thailand, and I, I didn't say this before, but Taekwondo is originally, um, originated in Korea. Um, now, I, I studied Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, which is like a mixture of wrestling 
because you're trying to take your opponent down to the ground, but you're also trying to submit them through joint manipulation, so arm locks or knee locks. But you can also do chokes, um, cutting off um, the air supply. So um, if you could think of, like, if a snake were to do, like, martial arts, I think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu would kind of describe what that's like. Um, and it can kind of look like, you know, two people rolling um, on the ground, but you're exchanging moves and positions. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I love, um, and I think why I really focus in on that art is because even if you're a much smaller opponent, angles and leverage, so it doesn't necessarily dis- depend on strength, even though that could be, you know, a, a plus, but it allows you – for me, a very small person, um, I actively trained with, you know, partners who are over 200 pounds and was able to maneuver and move um, and adjust and, um, you know, submit people who are much larger than me, and that's where the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is. Um, jiu-Jitsu, I, I would say it's the same because I studied with an American instructor. Um, we said we take Jiu-Jitsu, but it still stems um, from Brazil. Um, and then I've also done Judo as well. And um, judo is the art of um, taking down your uh, another opponent through throws or takedowns. Um, and mixed martial arts is really a combination of all of those different martial arts put in one. Um, so I've trained specifically in MMA, but I've also trained specific styles um, that are part of the mixed martial arts curriculum. Well, wow, that's very uh, vast, and thank you for for explaining that. Well, what, what is the origin of where does uh where's judo originated from? Japan. Okay. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah, Let's see origi- with um originated in Japan. Originated in Japan. Okay, I got you. Thank you. Now uh I wanna get now into what you do, your main study and something that you've done professionally, currently do professionally, and that's uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What was it about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I know you explained it, but can you go more into detail for the audience out there? Like, what was it about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that made you want to pursue it professionally as opposed to the other forms of martial arts that you've practiced? Um, well, uh, with Jiu-Jitsu, I feel like the community that I joined um, really just offered a lot of different opportunities. Jiu-Jitsu was still, um, I would say, relatively new within America. So it was, um, I, I definitely think it went through a phase where it was something very new to everyone and people wanted to be a part of it. Um, Jiu-Jitsu challenged me in a different way because I felt like, you know, even as an athlete for a lot of the other styles of martial arts that I did, Jiu-Jitsu was the most challenging for me um, because, you have to be calm in some of the most difficult and uncomfortable spaces. So for me, it really pushed me, um, I think, to just grow as a true martial artist. And I was like, man, if I can master this this martial arts where there's someone who may be on your back choking you, trying to put you to sleep, you know, this person is two times your size, it challenged me in a different way than Taekwondo did um, and any other styles of martial arts. It also allows for a lot of creativity. So I am... I'm a very petite person, 125 pounds. Um, I'm pretty flexible. So it allows you to be able to use the natural skills that you have um, and to be very creative with the angles and the leverage, where I feel like some of the other martial arts I did were very rigid. So it did not allow for the space of creativity to use whatever your advantage is in certain situations. It was very traditional, like this is the move, this is what it looks like 100% of the time, there's no modification to this move. When Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is like, well, I'm flexible. I can put my foot there. So instead of me having to do three moves, I can do the same thing and accomplish the same thing in one move. 
And um, I think once once that unlocked for me, there was a new challenge of like, okay, what's my style? What are some things that I can do that, you know, I'm very fast. So, you know, if you have a very fast person, even though someone may be much bigger than you, you can use your speed to be able to defeat somebody who's much larger. So I think because it offered more of a mental challenge for me, uh, that is why I really stuck to the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it challenged me in a way that I hadn't been challenged in other martial arts. And it was very low impact. You know, when you're doing Muay Thai, you're, you're checking kicks. You're taking a lot of heat on the body. And I definitely think that, that that's a great skill to have in Muay Thai. I'm, I'm very thankful that I have that skill. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you don't encounter a lot of, like, heavy injuries because no one's constantly impacting you with kicks or punches, you know. Um, and you do train, you know, if you're on the ground and somebody throws a punch or someone, you know, is trying to knee you or, you know, kick you while you're on the ground. Um, but you're able to really use the angles to be able to kind of maneuver around those things. So uh, that's, I think that's why jiu-jitsu in particular really, really stuck with me. Okay, let's stay with Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a moment. Now, from watching a UFC and, and various MMA events and uh, kickboxing and various forms of martial arts over the years, I noticed that in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the way to basically, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you neutralize your opponent uh, through a lot of submission holds and a lot of takedowns. And, of course, the, the object of winning the match is always to make your opponent submit or making them tap out, whatever the case may be. Can you? But there's also something that I, I've recently saw in a, a, UFC, a UFC match, and I talked to someone on a podcast about uh, a technical submission. Can you explain to the, uh, the audience in detail, like, what a technical submission is, as well as the uh, various forms of ways that you win Brazilian jiu-jitsu matches? Yes, well... Um, if you're doing a technical submission, typically what you're doing is um, you are applying, I mean, it's joint manipulation, so you can arm bar someone, which means you extend their arm to the point where their elbow cannot extend or stretch any further than it can a person, of, of course, tap. You can do those same locks and joints to the, to the legs, which are knee bars and um, leg locks. Um, you can apply pressure with, like, straight ankles, which means essentially you're, like, putting a choke in on someone's um, ankle. Um, you also have uh, wrist locks and toe holds, uh, which allows you to really isolate one particular part of the body, and you're turning the body to go two different ways. And really a technical submission is when a person submits, they say, I cannot escape this movement. There's nothing I can do outside of injuring myself, which is to, to, to break a bone to be able to escape this technique. And that's when a person taps. Uh, but you also have – you can also win by points. So dominant position. So mount if you are on top of a person and they cannot escape and you hold um, the position from three to five seconds of complete control, um, you can gain points. You can also take a person's back. So it means that, like, your chest is on their back, your arms are, like, controlling under their armpits, and then your feet are on top of their thighs or their figure four locked which means that you have completely isolated or taken the person's back. Those are the most points that you can get, which are four. You can pass someone's guard, which means if someone is on their back, they're using their arms and legs to prevent you from getting control, whether it's covering the side of their body or mounting their body. Um, you can score by passing their guard. Um, of course, there are takedowns, so if both people are on the feet and you put a person down or if one person is sitting, 
uh, and comes up and the other person ends up on their back, you can score um, with points. And then there's advantages. So if you're really, really close to getting something, like you've been really working to pass the person's guard, you get to side control, which means that, like, one hand is behind their head holding them, your chest is to their chest, and one arm is basically near the hip. If you can hold the person, perhaps you didn't make it to three seconds, but you held them for two seconds, and then they bridge and turn away, you can get an advantage, which means that you are very close to a position. So when they do the score, um, you also get submission attempts. So let's say I go for a leg lock and a person has to defend really, really hard to get out of the movement, then you can also get an advantage submissions, which are actually heavier advantages. If you almost submit somebody in, in a match and then they almost pass your guard, if it goes to like a referee's type of decision, the person who went for the submission, because that's considered the more aggressive move, that person would typically take it. So jiu-jitsu is a combination of trying to dominate a person by holding a position, and when you get to dominant positions, that's typically where you fire your submission, so your chokes and um, your joint manipulation from those dominant spaces. Oh, wow. That, that's a lot right there. Thank you for explaining that. That's interesting right there for people that may not be familiar in that world or are still uh, newbies to uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and how um, your points are scored and how you win a match. Now, let's go into your uh, career. I'm looking at some of the, the stats that you have right there, and you can uh, add on as well. Some of the achievements that you have, you've been an international Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion, and uh, you've also won titles not just in a world titles, but also Pan-American and European titles as well. Um, if there's any other uh, achievements that you would like to share with, with the audience and anything that I didn't mention, you're welcome to uh, uh, tell us that as well. Um, well, I'm also Abu Dhabi um, um, pro champion. I went over um, to basically uh, this is a tournament. It's been in existence, I want to say, maybe 10 years. Um, and they fly competitors from all over the world. It's a sponsored tournament. Um, I've actually gone to Abu Dhabi and represented um, the U.S. on three different occasions, um, and I actually won um, back in 2013. And, um, you know, I, that was definitely an awesome experience. I think one of the highest paid experiences um, as well within my, my, um, my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu career. Um, I also represented the, the Abu Dhabis in China. I represented for the U.S. representative. It was in China, but this was a no-gi tournament. So, yeah, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you wear the gi, which is basically like a uniform that you would see in karate, but it's a much thicker um, gi. They can weigh anywhere from on the low end, like four and a half pounds, all the way up to about eight pounds. So there's the gi, and then there's no-gi. So I represented for the no-gi, the Abu Dhabi um, World Championships in Nogi, um, and that was in China um, in 2015. Um, and let's see, I've also competed, like you said, I'm a European Pan American champion, and I'm actually also the very first um, female Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, African-American female Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Um, and, you know, when I started the sport, there were not very many women of color, um, who did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I mean, I'm the I'm you know 32 years old, and I'm the very first um, you know black female to actually achieve the rank of black belt, and um, that was definitely uh, something I was really really pushing for, and of course always supporting you know our women um, of color, our melanated women to to get involved in martial arts. 
um, but particularly within the jujitsu um, realm. And then the the only there's only a handful of um, of black female Brazilian jujitsu practitioners, um, and you know three of them came out of the same studio who were my main training partners. Um, Sajara Eubanks, who's the current UFC um, flyweight right now, she's doing an amazing job. Um, she was one of my main training partners for about eight years, and then Array Alexander, um, who's also a multiple-time world champion at blue, purple, um, brown belt, and has also won some major titles at black belt as well. So, yeah. Oh, man, that's, mm-hmm, that's awesome. Congratulations on you, on your achievements and also uh, those ladies' achievements as well. I want to stay with uh, just the classifications. You mentioned that you received a uh, purple belt and a brown belt, which are also the first – African-American woman to be a, a black belt uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion. But can you explain to the audience out there the different levels between, uh, say, a purple belt and a brown belt and a black belt? Yeah, well, um, outside of the time that your match is last, just the skill, jiu-jitsu, it's, it's a very unorthodox martial arts and, and very different from, from some of the other styles. Like in Taekwondo, uh, it was very predictable, you know, every few strikes. I want to test for a belt, and, you know, I can match out that I should be a black belt within, you know, six years. It's With Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's, it's different. Um, there's only five belts. You have white belt. Um, you have blue belt, purple, brown, and black, excuse me, six. And then the last belt is a red belt where there are only um, about six people ever in history to, to achieve the red belt. And uh, really between the, the belts, white belt is considered beginner, Blue belt is intermediate, kind of where you start to uh, those those jujitsu pieces or your game really comes together. Um, purple belt is just another level of inter, uh, of intermediate, but you can have some purple belts who've been training for seven years, uh, which you know very very skilled um, for a long time because there were not enough female black belts when I started. Brown and black belts are put together, so you may have a female who was training jujitsu. She may have been a black belt for 10 years, black belt alone, and then you have a brown belt, someone who just came from purple belt, who may have been training, you know, jujitsu, let's say they're on a fast path. I got my, I got my purple belt um, within about three years, which is considered pretty fast. Most people um, reach their purple belt status anywhere from like five to seven years of training. And, but like for me, when I went from my purple belt to my brown belt, I've been training jujitsu for about four four and a half years, and then, like, my first opponent I had was, like, a five-time Black Girl World Champion. So, for the ladies, at one point, everyone was kind of tossing there together uh, for the brown and black belt, but it's a it's a vast difference in just the skill level um, between brown and black belt. Basically, when you get to the black belt, your matches are 10 minutes, and it's ba- every, everything goes. There aren't too many submissions that are illegal. Um, in the gi, heel hooks are illegal because it twerks, it twerks the knee. Um, but, you know, at the white belt and the blue belt level, as far as the type of submissions that you can do, basically all chokes are open, but when it comes to, like, wrist locks and leg locks, they, we don't allow that for the, for the lower belts just because those moves can be very dangerous. So um, once you start getting to the brown and black belt level, you can start to do wrist locks, you can do toe holds, which is just small joint manipulation. Uh, white and blue belts can do arm bars, uh, Really, that's one of the only major <laughs> that's one of the only major locks that they can do because the other one um, can can be very dangerous. 
Oh, wow, that's interesting right there. Again, giving us some uh, great tips on that. And I wanted you, you mentioned about that you represented the United States competing in Abu Dhabi. Now, we know that all around the world that Brazilian jiu-jitsu or just martial arts is really big. It's something that uh, uh, a lot of those regions, they pride themselves on making martial arts very popular and putting it out on the forefront. Can you tell me uh, the differences between how – America reacts to uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu as opposed to your experiences traveling uh, uh, traveling in other to other countries. Uh, yes, of course. Well, Abu Dhabi in particular, it's like a requirement in a lot of schools. So kids, you know, they bring a lot of uh, Brazilian. My brother actually went to Abu Dhabi and taught for two years, and it is very welcome in that country. That you know, part of kids' day, they take Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's a part of their curriculum. Um, every student takes it, and there's so many, you know, martial artists who've been offered so many opportunities where you're a full-time employee with benefits and health care in Abu Dhabi. Um, the Sheik uh, is a really, really big fan, um, um, and this is the, the, the um, late Sheikh Zaid. He has two sons um, who are absolute fans Um and they are the sheikhs over in Abu Dhabi. There are literally statues and, and, and different things to represent them um, in the country. And because they love it so much, they made it a requirement within the school. So kids take it over there, and, you know, it's nothing to see, you know, people walking around with their, you know, jiu-jitsu geese. Um, and it's the same, um, not to that extent, but over um, when I went over to China, a lot of kids took martial arts. Jiu-Jitsu was still one of the newer martial arts to surface um, over there where it's not something that students were taking um, necessarily in school. Um, and, you know, here in the States, my, my this is something new. Um, I teach for a charter organization, and my husband is currently piloting a mixed martial arts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu program, and we came up in the same martial arts um, academy. And he currently – um, pilots a martial arts school that we're hoping um, within the um, over 3,000 students that we have within the network, something that we would like to offer at every single school. And I think it's just kind of making its way into like a possibility because martial arts does offer so much discipline, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very low impact where um, I, it's, it's, re it's taken relatively well by schools because kids aren't necessarily throwing punches or kicks. Relatively, it's looked at as a self-defense martial arts, like what happens if a kid, you know, is knocked down to the ground or if a young lady um, is in a situation where someone is trying to violate her, right? So the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, you know, within our organization, um, you know, is, is awesome. Um, the school has been very receptive to the martial arts, and we're hoping um, that this is something that we will be able to offer really nationwide. We're starting with this school, but it's essentially the in-school martial arts experience. And the kids in my school, it's a part of, like, on their report cards. So kids actually have mixed martial arts as a curriculum. Kids are graded in martial arts the same way that they would take tests if they were in a martial arts school. They go through the belt system and the ranking system, and they also participate in tournaments. So, you know, hopefully, you know, we have a conversation down the line, and maybe in the next five to ten years this is something that um, would actually be considered normalized uh, within the, the United States. 
Oh, man, that's that's wonderful to hear the great things that you and your husband are doing. That's definitely important to get that involved in the curriculum. It's important that not just everybody, but particularly people of color, learn self-defense. That is so critical and very key. I want to stay with your career that you have in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You've competed in a lot of tournaments, and we know that, of course, you have a, a deep love and a deep passion for it, but also – uh, also, I know there's some prize money involved in this. I don't want to get too into detail or into your business about, but I want to know as far as the pay scale is concerned, how does the pay scale work in terms of um, who wins a certain amount to, depending on who wins? You know, if you win a tournament, how much does a competitor get? How does the pay scale work in terms of who wins how much if you finish in first and second or, or in third place? Well, it really varies. Um, Abu Dhabi pays the best um, grand prize to win over in Abu Dhabi can be up to $50,000 for one tournament. Um, and that would literally consist of two days of competing. Uh, depending on how large your bracket is, you could have anywhere from six um, to nine, you know, sometimes depending how large the weight class is, if it's the open class, you may have up to about 12 bouts um, over a two-day span. Um, and a grand prize, the highest, um, that I've competed in has been 50000 But there are other tournaments um, with um, – that it hasn't been offered to the women yet. There's still some um, some inequality that happens between our men and our women. Um, but there have been men who fought in tournaments for up to $100,000. So um, it, it it depends on what tournament you're doing. IBJJF, um, which is the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, is one of the largest competing federations. But they don't offer a lot of cash prizes. So you can be a professional, but you really are just winning a title there. And by winning a title within the organization, some of the organizations that actually pay out of pocket will have you to um, participate because what you've done is JJS. Um, I've done some team tournaments where collectively as a team um, was up to like 30000 I've competed in Vegas um, and did a tournament where um, it was about 7000 and I fought um, – four different matches in Vegas. So uh, it depends on the organization. NAGA is a relatively large organization. Grappler's Quest um, is one of the larger American organizations, and typically for their professional divisions, um, payout cash. Um, I've also done, like, some super fights, and a super fight is a specific fight set up against one person from one academy and one other, so you don't fight any other people. Um, and I've done super fights where the cash prize has been up to $5,000 for one fight. Um, so it depends on who the sponsors are. Um, I've also had sponsorships um, with On The Mat, uh, with 12P Live, and even within your sponsorship as professional athletes, when you win your prize, your sponsors will also um, sometimes match your prize by 50% um, in addition to, you know, covering all of your travel um, all of the international travel that I've all, that I've always that I've always had a sponsor. So I've traveled to you know Europe, Abu Dhabi, Canada, all these different places um, where I you know I didn't have to pay. And um, on general though, cash prizes for black folks at smaller tournaments is a thousand dollars. So if you win your division, um, you know you can earn a thousand dollars, and you know most events pay cash. And uh, you know. The, the most tournaments, most of the time at this point when I'm competing, unless it's the IBJJF tournament, um, it has to, you know, have a pretty pretty good cash prize. 
Okay, awesome. That's interesting to hear about how that, that works on an independent level in uh, the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. In your career, can you t- t- take us through uh, a fight day? Can you just take us um, the steps that, that you go through, the, not just the physical, but the mental preparation of what's it like on a fight day? Can you take us through that? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, one of the things I really work through throughout my martial arts career, um, like I told you, when I first started martial arts, I didn't even like it for the first, you know, two years. And I think it was just a lot of anxiety. My dad was always big about, like, you got to let the tiger loose because I can, you know, one of the things I worked through is, like, holding myself back um, when it comes to, you know, competing. And I think just because I had a lot of anxiety around that, um, for me, though, I know me wake up early. Um, I, on competition days, I don't do any type of working out. Um, you know, on a, on a typical day, I may get up. I may have a light breakfast, depending on what my weight is. There was one time, um, you know, for about six years of my career that I typically had to cut weight. Um, and on average, maybe about 10 pounds before a person um, who has um, – I've a lot of muscle mass, so very little fat. So 10 pounds for me uh, is a lot of work. So depending on where I am in my weight, on average, um, having a very uh, light breakfast, um, wake up and I do a lot of um, meditation and um, visual matches where I'm going through what my game plan is. And, you know, for those of you who don't know what a game plan is, you have like what's like your bread and butter techniques. You, you actually look at some of your opponents knowing, like, okay, this person is a takedown person or this person has this submission. Like, you know, when you get to the professional, you know, air, there are signature moves that people do, and it's shown, like, if a person gets to this move or if a person gets to this technique, uh, there's very little chances of escaping or getting out of this particular move. So we have um, game plans that you have what are your movements and what essentially is the perfect match. So I'll just do, um, you know, one of my favorite um, people to, you know, listen to. I'm from D.C., so I love Go-Go. I feel like Go-Go is, like, uh, really, like, uh, war music. It has a lot of African drums, so it's a type of music that really gets me amped up, um, that I find a lot of comfort in. Um, I love uh, Chuck Brown, CCB, CCB. Like, I love, you know, um, Mumbo Sauce, Go-Go Band, so from the area, and it kind of helps me to kind of cure some of that anxiety. Um, kind of get me sweating and moving. Um, I typically will get to the venue um, within two hours of um, competition time. That gives me an opportunity to find a space that I can actually do a very good warm-up, um, you know, and to also hear any rules or, if you know, to also check the official um, scale. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, if you're weighing in in a gi tournament, you have to also weigh in with your gi. So you like to get there early to know because sometimes the scale may be may run what some will consider light and some will consider heavy. So you want to get there in enough time to say, okay, let me weigh in because let's say I'm half a pound over, I may need to run or sweat to make to make sure that I make the weight. Or, you know, I may need to switch gis and instead of wearing my six-pound gi that has all my passes on it, I may have to put on a four-pound gi to to be um, aware of what, you know, my weight is on the scale. Um, so I listen to music. I warm up. Hummel typically will have a person who's not competing um, to kind of be a part of your warm-up where, you know, they'll kind of roll you out just to have you warm so you're ready to go on your first match, um, taping up your fingers, 
um, you know, for grip exchange. So I like to at least flush out one match. So what I'll do is do an extensive hard warm-up for 10 minutes, which is what it will be for one full black belt match. Um, I, I, I use that match to kind of get out the initial um, butterflies and that first wind that comes. So when I go into my first match, I've already worked up a sweat. I'm kind of in a, in, a, in a space, you know, and I'm ready to go. Um, and then I do a lot of mental visualization. The, the school that I study with was really big on the mental piece. And a lot of people break down in competition because they're not mentally strong or, you know, they haven't really visualized themselves in that position. So I do a lot of mental visualization, seeing me in the perfect match, going through if the match was not perfect and perhaps I ended up in a space I didn't want to be in, kind of running through my strategy where it's really um, first nature for me. And, um, you know, and then I'm ready to go. Uh, I normally take a, a shot of honey maybe 10 to 15 minutes before stepping on the mat just to kind of give me like an energy boost and uh, shake hands and then we go. Wow, that's interesting right there. You know, but people paid so much attention, not just in uh, martial arts, but really in sports. People um, kind of like on the outside looking in, they always pay attention to the, to the physical side of things, which is true. But I think that mental preparation is so key, man. You get, you know, you can have all this, you can be prepared all you want, but mentally, if you're not there, man, it can, it can really break down. And speaking of uh, mentally breaking down, you mentioned that you are the first African-American black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. And we know, as you mentioned, that there's only a handful of uh, women of color that are practicing this art form. Have you had any incidents of uh, racism being on the circuit or just um, something, uh, anything like similar in, in terms of you practicing this art form? Um. Yes, and it's it's interesting because, you know, I'm – the, the, the academy that I um, trained with and, and, and came through the rankings with, we were a, a minority team. So literally we produced um, the most, we produced the most, um, you know, people of color. We produced the most people of color um, who've actually achieved um, black belt, um, and it's interesting because, you know, typically we travel t- together. I've never had to be in a situation where I had to travel alone. And we've always kind of gotten looked, um, you know, one, uh, being American, a lot of other um, countries can sometimes uh, maybe disagree, you know, with just Americans in general. I'm not sure what they've, you know, what they've grown up to learn about Americans, but sometimes you kind of get the side out for people because you're an American. Um, and then, you know, being um, a black female, I've also within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu have had people who um, are racist, you know, and, you know, they may say things online. Um, and the thing that's different about Jiu-Jitsu than I feel than any of the other styles that I have, because for me it's not a very, it is not served as a very traditional martial arts where a lot of, uh, where a lot of respect, like in Taekwondo, um, I think because it was such a old style of martial arts that was very uh, the, the values and the foundation of martial arts were about being respectful to yourself, being respectful to the people you compete against. 
jiu-jitsu because I feel like it's a newer style of martial arts. That foundation is not embedded in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So you get people to say some, you know, extremely racist things. And even if it hasn't been to me, it's been to my teammates describing, um, you know, we have a very aggressive style, but of course, um, comparing people to um, primates and different things like that um, because of the stature of people, how large they are. So there's definitely been some people to say some things that were, um, you know, that were racist. I'm not always, you know, in my face outside of people sometimes looking like, why are you here? But, um, you know, from the things that people say online or how they may address you when you come into a space, um, I've definitely um, dealt with that. And I think, like, even been accepted into, like, I had a great sponsor, but even when it comes into, like, magazines and the women that they consider um, to represent the sport, um, you know, I, I have not had some of the same opportunities that other women who've had who do not have the um, the accolades that I've achieved in martial arts who've gotten promotions and been and able to be a part of things. And, you know, for me, you don't, you don't look in a magazine and see black women, you know, um, who are being sponsored for these or sponsored for these tournaments and different things like that. Um, it's very difficult to, to actually find pieces where you see our women who are represented in, you know, in geese or, or whatever, you know, martial arts equipment that's out there. Very little do you see women of color, you know. And, um, you know, I get people to, you know, who will see me all the time and say, man, you're, you're such a beautiful woman to be doing martial arts and, you know, all these things. It's interesting. I haven't seen you here or seen you there. You know, my thing is it, it, you know, maybe it is because, you know, being a black woman, it's not what, you know, they consider to be uh, a good representation. Wow, that's interesting. As they say, the more, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But it's good that uh, people like you that are, you know, at the forefront, and I'm sure you're, you're blazing a trail for, uh, more, not just more women of color, but more people of color to follow suit, and that's going to go into uh, the next thing I want to ask you. What, what if for people of color, more minorities that want to get involved in the field of martial arts, uh, what tips do you have for them? Um, I would definitely say give it a try. You know, I definitely think that, um, you know, find a um, – a community and a and a space that is uh, welcoming, um, and I definitely think that you know even though there may not be uh, currently like a lot of people that um, you know that look like you that are from your community, it is definitely uh, is definitely worth giving a try. And um, I think the more of us who actually get involved um, in the sports there will be more, you know, young ladies and young um, men who see people of color who are in the martial arts because I do feel like, you know, one of the things I talk to my teammates about is just the power and dominance that we have for my team alone. There's so many, you know, black world champions who came in through our martial arts academy. And, um, you know, what we were doing was completely unheard of. These are young, you know, melanated, young melanated people, kids who are out here, young adults who are out here, and we're traveling all over the world, and we are beating the competition. People have been doing this stuff since they were children, grew up, you know, in this particular martial arts. And we have some people, you know, who haven't started until they're 13 or 14 years old, and they're out here running with some of the top, um, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners out here. And I think that as a people, 
we're just so talented. And I think we should tap into, I think that we should tap into uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it is important that we can effectively protect ourselves. And, um, you know, and I do think that, you know, from those who I've, you know, worked with and trained with, um, I, I think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu comes very um, naturally and it's something that we do dominate in, you know, and it's another, it's a different type of uh, athleticism and skill that we can use. And, um, you know, I definitely recommend at least trying it. Like my parents, when, you know, we first started taking Jiu-Jitsu, it was kind of our thing that we did. And I remember, you know, my parents finding their love even in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like, man, I didn't know I was going to, I was going to like this or enjoy this so much. So, you know, if you're thinking about doing it, I would definitely recommend finding a good school um, that you feel comfortable with. And, um, you know, because I've, I've definitely made a lot of great friendships and relationships with people all over the world of all ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. Um, and it's provided a lot of different opportunities for me. And, um, you know, I think it's a vital skill that every person should be able to experience and know. Definitely. Uh, you know, martial arts is definitely something that's really cool. And as you mentioned, exposure is definitely the key. That's what your parents did with you and your brother. So a uh, great job on explaining that. And you mentioned that you and your husband are involved in the uh, the school system in Washington, D.C., and you are a middle school math teacher. What, uh, what type of math do you teach? Um, I teach pre-algebra um, and then some algebra for my more advanced students. And um, I've been overworking within this network for about four years now. And, um, you know, I absolutely love it. It's something that I really stumbled on. Um, I had just had my twin girls, and I went in, um, you know, I was still, you know, at the Martial Arts Academy, but I was also um, looking to make some additional income as I was not, as I was not competing at the time. And I came into the, the school and the principal, I was a substitute, and the principal came to me. He kept walking past the room and checking in, and he came to me at the end of the day and he said, you know, you're the first substitute we've ever had that I did not have to come in and, like, control the class. And I was like, oh, no, 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 like, it's not going to be any kids cutting up. Like, I literally run my class even now like a martial arts class, and I feel like if I can keep 25 five- and six-year-olds who are learning to throw each other with some throws that, like, if you drop a kid on their head, they can injure themselves. If I can keep these kids safe and disciplined, I know I can do it in a classroom with, with students who are only required to, you know, do work and not be physical. And, you know, he offered me an opportunity and said, I, I would just love you on my team. I, I don't know, you know, what you would necessarily teach at this point, but I just think you're a great person and would love to have you on the team. And um, I graduated from Trinity University with uh, an undergrad degree in biology uh, with a minor in English. And so I have extensive, you know, math background. And he was like, well, how would you feel about, you know, teaching a math class? And, um, you know, that, that was kind of all she wrote. Um, and I've been within this um, community in Washington, D.C., in the Trinidad area. Like I said, um, I'm going into my fifth year. And I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I still, because my husband teaches active martial arts there, I still get on the mats with my students, grappling, teaching my students techniques, um, even having an after-school um, program for my young ladies to learn how to protect themselves um, effectively as well. So, um, you know, that's, that's where I've been. That's where my calling has been over the last um, few years, and I absolutely love it. 
Wow, that's awesome to hear, and uh, congratulations on earning those degrees right there. I want to ask you, you know, math math is all about numbers, and it's all about thinking and putting concepts together. Do you see uh, a correlation between math and uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Oh, I do, because it's an art. Math is an art, right? And you know, you, you have these different equations, and you can solve them. I tell my students all the, all the time, like, I, I'm, I'm giving you all these different tools, but you can use all these different tools to be able to solve the same problem, and it's whatever tool that you want to use. And I feel like, um, and, and, and it's very calculated, and I feel like it's the same for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You have all these different tools. You get to use them and chop them up and put them in any order you want, and you'll still breed the same result. And it challenges you in a way because, for me, math is like a puzzle, right? And, I, you know, you're solving equations to my kids. It's like a puzzle. This piece goes here. This piece goes here. She may have added. You may have subtracted. But at the end of the day, we all got the same answer. And I feel like jujitsu is that, too. It's, it's a puzzle that you're trying to fit in and you're trying to complete. And, you know, the puzzle pieces may be different every single time that you get out there and compete. You know, your opponents are different. But you know, you can still use all those different tools that you have and overcome, you know, whatever the situation is. And it and it requires you to think. I think jujitsu is a thinking sport and you have to think in the moment when you're in a very uncomfortable space when somebody may be on your back and they're about to choke you and you have sixty seconds. You know, and it's like sixty seconds, what tools do I have in my belt right now to be able to not only get out of this position but to be able to dominate and to finish. And it has a lot of similarities with the creativeness, um, with the math, and I think that's definitely why I've really taken to that particular subject. All right, fair enough. Great explanation right there. And, um, you know, a lot of schools have dealt – the whole world is dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic and the coronavirus, and we know a lot of kids, unfortunately, did not have the opportunity to – experience traditional graduations and also do the traditional uh, high school activities and things of that nature. And how has, first of all, this is a two, how have you been able to handle the COVID-19 pandemic with you being a school teacher? And also I want to know how, how have you had to adjust things during this pandemic? Well, it's, um, of course, it's really been different. Um, the students I particularly work with in my network, um, they're in the Trinidad, Washington, D.C. area. They come from a lot of different backgrounds, but that area um, was considered one of um, the most dangerous places to be in Washington, D.C. within the last 10 years. And so these are the babies of, you know, of of that. They are the outcome of, of, of that environment. So it's been really different because I know there are a lot of kids who the stability of coming in, um, I know that I am mother for many of my students. I'm their mom or their big sister or their aunt. Um, you know, my I, 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 I'm really, really focused on building relationships. Um, so it was difficult because my kids come in and, and, you know, we talk about everything. I mean, you know, they know that the classroom is, is you know, where we push the content, but ultimately, you know, it's about them becoming better people and really entrusting me with their lives. So the, one of the hardest challenges is, you know, me being able to hug that baby that I know, you know, what their situation may be at home and kind of some of the things that they've been dealing with. Those students that you really need to just wrap your arms around who you know need that, you know, on a daily basis. 
that is definitely one of the toughest pieces of the pandemic because, you know, I I can only imagine what it's like for them not to have that and then for them to be suppressed into the environments that they're in. Um, so that's definitely been a difficult piece, you know, and then, of course, I have my students who, need, who are hands-on learners. Um, math is not, you know, an easy subject for everyone. I have an inclusion class where I have students who have, you know, IEPs or students who come into my classroom whose math ability has only been on a fifth grade level. So I know, you know, one of the struggles has been still reaching those students. Um, and, you know, I really worked extremely hard over the last um, couple months really just to make it engaging for all my students and be able to do a warm touch to all of my kids the same way it would be if they were in my classroom. Um, and for me, it's been an adjustment. I didn't know how much I also needed my kids to be able um, to express the love in the way that I like to share. And I didn't even realize, you know, how much that, that impacted me on my on my day-to-day. It was like one day I was just like, I just couldn't settle myself. I was a little emotional, you know, and I was just like, man, I, I also look forward to, you know, being in my classroom. And, um, you know, I teach I teach all, you know, melanated kids of color, you know, and I miss being able to really be in, you know, our, you know, four walls of space and, you know, really educate my kids in a way that I know our kids need to be educated. And that was a struggle for me, you know, because I'm like, there's so much work to be done. And I feel like the pandemic, you know, really, really takes away from, you know, what we know our kids need. And our community, our kids are hands-on. They need a warm touch. They need hugs. They need me to, you know, pop them on the back of the neck a little bit. You know, they they need those things. And um, that was definitely a, a big piece you know, that I needed to adjust to. That's wonderful to hear that. You know, I always say, you know, there's athletes and there's entertainers and there's things of that nature. But, man, educators, in my opinion, educators make all the difference of the world, all make a lot, make all of the difference in the world. And educators, to me, have always been unsung heroes through good times and bad times, man. Educators have been really been one of the true winners during this pandemic, and they, they definitely continue to be the uh, the shining stars in all of this. So, uh, Nyjah, great job, and uh, again, thank you taking time. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us on the show currently. Just um, let the audience know uh, any current projects that you're working on right now. Um, well, right now from home, uh, my husband and I are actually in the process. Um, it's I'm called Monta Wealth. And what we're creating from home right now is really just a platform um, for um, colored and melanated businesses uh, to be able to um, – and it's, there's some platforms out there that do something very similar, but we wanted to make it like a one-stop shop. So you can find online businesses. You can find local businesses um, all throughout the United States. Um, you know, at some point we'll definitely be moving to an international platform. Um, it also lets you be able to find events. Um, sponsors and also congregate um, with others, um, you know, even like a, a space of like meeting new people, whether it's friends or you're looking for a romantic relationship. So it's really all things um, colored and, and, and melanated. And, um, you know, we understand how really the, the black dollar only stays us in our communities for six hours. And I think that number really spoke to us when we looked at other communities 30 days and 15 days and seeing how many is constantly – outsource, but, you know, we, you know, spend over a trillion dollars, you know, investing in different things outside of our own community, and it really hit us that with over 2 million 
accounted black businesses in the United States of America, the dynamic shift and change that we could do if we kept our money in our own communities. And, um, you know, it's easy said. I remember one of the things, like, my friend was, I'm only buying black. And then she was, like, on day three, and she's, like, there's not enough resources. And that's kind of where that idea sparked, and it's, like, I want to be able to invest my money, but what happens when I need to get something like right here and right now? There's nothing I can go to and see in our community. So we just want to spotlight different um, businesses. We want to link different relationships within our um, community. So that's one of the pieces um, that we've been avidly working on. Um, The release, um, the app is at the beginning of September, so it will be active on all platforms. And if you can think about, like, Yelp, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook, um, Black Planet, uh, if you can think of all of those um, different platforms combined into one space that's a very user-friendly app, uh, we're going to be releasing that into September. Um, And then the second project that we've been really working on within this pandemic is we're in the process of purchasing some land. And ultimately what we would like to do is really get into agriculture um, we were just been um, doing some reading and some studies about the importance of agriculture, and um, that's not something that's big within our community. And um, right now we've just kind of been learning about um, farming and different ways that we can um, use the resources that we have to be able to um, put back and push back in our community. Um, so that's kind of one of the other projects that we've also been uh, focused on over the last few months. Well, man, you you and your husband definitely have your hands full, but that's great that uh, you're keeping it moving regardless of what's going on right now. So, again, great job, Nyjah. And just tell the audience out there, where can they find you on social media? And if you have a website, let them know that as well. Yeah, so on social media, um, it's beautiful, BJJ. Um, That is one of my um, Instagram platforms, one of the ones I'm most active on. Um, then you can also go to the Monta Wealth, um, which was uh, the app that I was just sharing with you. It'll give you more information and reference um, to the the review. And then beautifulbjj.com um, is my website where it highlights um, some of um, what I was a little bit lost within the, the women's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was also the beautiful side of it. And uh, one of the things that, you know, competing, I always, you know, have my hair done, my nails done, and I'm, and I'm like, you can be very – feminine and um, very strong and powerful um, and all of those things. And Beautiful BJJ is to really um, highlight those women who um, have their own style and their own grace within the martial arts. Well, you heard it from her. She's Naja Rollins. She is the first African-American woman uh, to be a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion. She's also a game changer in the, as a middle school math teacher in Washington, D.C., and doing great things in the entrepreneurial world as well. Naja, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the program. And if ever you want to come back on, feel free to let us know. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, and thank you so much for the opportunity. This was awesome. You're welcome. It was awesome as well. Now, now Nyjah, normally I always end the program by saying something, but I'll let you have the floor. If there's anything that's on your heart or it's anything that's on your mind, just something encouraging, anything you want to say, uh, the floor is yours. Um, at this point, you know, I, I, I've really been trying to motivate myself. You know, I, I think our country is in a, in a, in a pivotal space um, right now. And, you know, with a lot of the work that I've been doing, a lot of the messages that I push to my students is like, you know, um, 
at the end of the day, right, all that we can really give that makes a real transformation in this world is love. And I think it's, it's important that the days that we feel angry and that we, we, we feel upset and our emotions are um, sometimes in a very unfamiliar space is that we have to get back to the space of just loving um, uh, of humans, loving ourselves, and, you know, and right now with the things that we can control, um, you know, whether it's your family, whether it's your community, really just showing that love, um, and it will outshine the frustration, the hate that, that, that we encounter um, right now. And, um, and, then I, and then find something to be grateful for, right? And um, the days that I, that I feel down or, you know, you know, all the things that you see on social media and the news and the things that you hear, it's so easy to let that become the focus point of your life. But I look around and I find something to be grateful for. Um, I look at my kids. You know, it's simple to, like, being able to wake up and to have a new experience. Um, and, and I find those things that I'm, that I'm grateful for. And I really think that um, by having love and, being, and, and, and showing grateful in what we have, um, we can really, really make a shift and a change. So um, I urge and challenge you to love up on somebody else, um, especially those who you know really, really need it. Oh, that was well put. Thank you again, Naja. And as uh, as always, remember, stay safe. And if you have to go outside, uh, please wear a mask. Otherwise, just uh, stay home. Until next time, stick to yep. the script. We're out of here. Thank you again, Naja. All right. No problem. You have a great day. All right. Okay, you too. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room. You don't go to a clinic. You get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're going to do. But the first reflex should not be, I feel sick, I'm going to go to an emergency room. I feel sick, I'm going to just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, you may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at HomeAdvisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the HomeAdvisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started. We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at HomeAdvisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the HomeAdvisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started. When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. Hey, 
Are you a musician or someone with a small business and want to get more attention to your business and to your music? How about you create an ad with the MTMV Sports Podcast? By doing that, all you have to do is DM me, Nora Natish, at Nora, N-O-R-A, underscore Natish, N-A-T-I-S-H, on Instagram or Twitter. I will help you be able to get your song on our song of the week list and your ad for your business on MTMV Sports Podcast episodes. Hit me up if you want that hookup.